There have been some great names of wars through history, and the British have fought in a fair few of them, uh, the Opium Wars and the Hutt War, for example. And recently, I told the story about the Pig War. But a war about an ear? Really? Well, yes. In 1739, the mighty Spanish and British empires fought a war ranging through the Caribbean, Central and South America, the Pacific, and in North America, all because of a severed ear belonging to one Robert Jenkins. And whilst the causes of the war and what happened have largely been forgotten, some of the events and characters have found their way down to our present time, as you will find out later. This is the story of the War of Jenkins' Ear. So what was the cause of this bizarrely named war? Well, like a lot of wars, there were conflicting reasons. But the Casas Belli, or popular cause, was the boarding of British merchant ships in the Caribbean by Spanish authorities, who accused them of smuggling. The lucrative markets of the Spanish Empire were tightly controlled, and while some British ships were allowed to trade legally, they were very much in the minority, and could only dock at two ports in the whole of that vast Spanish Empire, which stretched from California to Chile, including the islands in the Caribbean like the Cuba. Nevertheless, a thriving black market soon developed, with British merchant ships smuggling goods into the Spanish colonies, avoiding the regular customs duties, which suited many of the Spanish subjects in that area down to the ground. Not surprisingly, the Spanish authorities were not so keen on losing their customs revenue, nor were they keen to open up their empire to unfettered free trade. They strengthened their coast guard service to try and intercept the smugglers. Now, if you think of these coast guards as being paid officials of the Spanish crown, wearing smart uniforms and forming part of the Spanish navy or civil service, then think again. The Spanish Coast Guards were a private enterprise. They acted with the same sort of devil-may-care customer service that some private car parking operators have been accused of doing in more recent British history. Fundamentally, they were little better than privateers, operating on behalf of the Spanish government. And as they were paid by results and allowed to keep whatever property they could acquire on the impounded vessels, all British ships were fair game, whether they were smuggling or not. Between 1713 and 1731, it was reported that 180 English ships were impounded by the Spanish authorities in the Caribbean. And this is where Robert Jenkins fits into our story. On one of those occasions, in 1731, a brig named the Rebecca was boarded on the seas between the Spanish colonies of Cuba and Florida. The captain of the Rebecca, a Welshman by the name of Robert Jenkins, was tied to the mast and his ear sliced with a cutlass. Then it was pulled off. The Spanish boarding party then proceeded to plunder the vessel, seizing the cargo of smuggled sugar, but also anything else of value, and smashed up the ship's navigation instruments. Somehow, poor old Jenkins was able to retrieve his ear, which he pickled in a jar, and took to London. He hawked it around the British capital without obtaining too much sympathy. Seven years later, that all changed. Growing frustration about increasing Spanish interference with British ships led to a parliamentary inquiry. Robert Jenkins came forward to give evidence, and his star turn was to produce his pickled ear. Members of Parliament and the press were horrified in a macabre sort of way, and Jenkins suddenly became the poster boy for those seeking redress from Spain for all those ships that had been seized. And so the British declared war. Well, that's the commonly held view, and it does hold a lot of truth. 
apart from the fact there's no evidence that Jenkins actually produced his pickled ear in Parliament. However, as with most of history, and you'll know from my stories, I always believe there's more than one point of view. It isn't the whole story. There are other factors at play, both strategic and localised. First off, in North America, the Spanish saw the foundation of the British colony of Georgia as a threat to their own American empire, not least their colony of Florida. They were keen to remove that perceived threat. Meanwhile, the colonists in Georgia were nervous of their Spanish neighbours to the south because they knew that of all of Britain's colonies in North America, they were the ones in the Spanish firing line. Secondly, at a strategic level, Great Britain was starting to worry about a shift in the European balance of power. There was an increasing concern about the growing ties between Spain and Britain's old enemy, France. The King of France was the Spanish King's nephew, and the family bond was starting to become a diplomatic one too. Not only could a combined French-Spanish fleet outnumber the Royal Navy, but they could present a serious threat to British interests in North America. More than that, this growing relationship between France and Spain could also result in France replacing England as Spain's main trading partner. Quite frankly, trade was never far from the surface in the history of the British Empire. Then there was a healthy dose of domestic British politics at play too. Britain's first Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole, had been in position for the best part of 20 years, and his political opponents were keen to topple him. Those opponents, who referred to themselves as patriots, wanted the British government to adopt a more robust foreign policy. Walpole, on the other hand, tended to adopt a more conciliatory approach, especially towards the Spanish. Indeed, in 1729, he had signed the treaty with Spain, actually allowing them to board British vessels. So by forcing him down the path of a war, the hawkish patriots saw a way of undermining his premiership. And just for good measure, there was office politics at play in the royal family too. King George II had fallen out with his son, Frederick, Prince of Wales. As the king relied on his prime minister, his son was only too happy to support Walpole's opponents, the Patriots, in their calls for war. The fall of Walpole would weaken the king's power vis-a-vis -vis his son. So, with negotiations stalling and with the public opinion being whipped up by his opponents, Walpole reluctantly gave way to the war lobby. A Royal Navy fleet was dispatched to the West Indies under Vice Admiral Edward Vernon in July 1739, and Britain declared war in the October. That news was greeted in Britain by cheering crowds and ringing church bells, in some ways not dissimilar to the joy that erupted at the outbreak of the First World War. On the 22nd of October, three Royal Navy warships attacked the Spanish port of La Guardia in modern-day Panama. Despite a three-hour cannon duel with the land batteries, they were unable to land a force to capture the town and withdrew to the British colony of Jamaica. Round one to Spain. A month later, the British notched up their first success when Vernon himself led six ships of the line against the Panamanian port of Portobello. A successful bombardment silenced the Spanish defenders and within 24 hours, he'd captured the port, a feat that despite several attempts in previous conflicts, the British had never achieved before. The news of the victory was greeted back in Britain with great celebration. Vernon remained in Portobello for three weeks, destroying the defences and warehouses before withdrawing. His next attack, or more correctly, attacks, proved less than successful. He now turned his attention to the other major Spanish port in the region, 
Cartagena de Indies, now simply called Cartagena on the Caribbean coast of Colombia. Between March 1740 and May 1741, he launched three assaults on the port, all of which were beaten off by the outnumbered defenders, who were led by a one-eyed, one-legged, one-armed commander. I kid you not. Blas de Lazo was a 51-year-old veteran of Spain's land and naval wars. He fought against the British and Dutch in the War of Spanish Succession, and when he was just 15, lost his left leg below the knee to a cannonball. In 1707, whilst defending the French port of Toulon, he lost his left eye, and in 1714, he lost his right arm whilst fighting in the siege of Barcelona. So by the age of 25, he'd lost an arm, a leg, and an eye in the service of his country. And amazingly, he refused to be invalided out and took senior commands fighting against the Turks and the Barbary pirates. In 1737, and as now a Lieutenant General in the Navy, he was placed in command of the economically and strategically important port of Cartagena de Indies in modern-day Colombia. His first brush with Admiral Vernon came in March 1740, when the latter arrived off the port with a squadron of ships of the line, along with three bomb or mortar vessels and transports. Despite a ferocious covering fire, Vernon's amphibious assault by 400 troops was beaten off. A further attack by Vernon two months later was also beaten off by the veteran Spanish commander. If the first two assaults had been inconclusive, the third and final assault was a disaster for the British. In May 1741, Vernon set sail from Jamaica with one of the largest British fleets ever assembled in the Caribbean, including 30 ships of the line. Accompanying him were 10,000 British soldiers and a further 4,000 troops raised in their North American colony of Virginia. The Virginians were commanded by one Lawrence Washington, the older half-brother of George Washington. Yes, that George Washington. Against this massive invasion force, the 51-year-old Blas de Lesso could muster just six warships, 3,000 Spanish troops and 600 militiamen. The initial bombardment went as planned and the troops, both British and Virginians, were able to land and secure a beachhead before advancing swiftly towards the fortifications to mop up the defenders. So confident was he of victory that Vernon sent a message to Jamaica and thence to London announcing his victory. Victory medals were struck in the British capital. Napoleon did something similar at Waterloo and rather like Napoleon, Vernon had counted his chickens before they'd hatched. Under the cover of darkness, his troops crept up to the base of the fort with ladders ready to storm the citadel at dawn. It was then that things started to go wrong. In the dark of the night, the advancing British discovered that the whiny Spanish commander had dug a deep ditch at the base of the fort. And consequently, the attackers' ladders were now too short to reach the top of the walls. As the dawn broke, the British now found themselves in a deep ditch and sitting ducks for the defenders above. With the British taking more and more casualties, and their morale rapidly dropping as the sun climbed in the sky, de Lezo now ordered the Spanish garrison to deliver a bayonet charge. The British were routed and fled back to the beach, where they were only saved by the overwhelming firepower of Vernon's ships of the line. For the next month, Vernon fired on the fort, but was unable to conduct another mass landing, not least because his fleet had succumbed to yellow fever. Eventually, the English admiral was forced to sail away, Behind him, he left 6,000 dead British soldiers and sailors out of his force of 27,000 men.
the Spanish had lost just 1,000. Despite plans to attack Havana and a futile landing at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, the war in the Caribbean fizzled out. Apart from those 6,000 dead sailors and soldiers, there was one more casualty from this British defeat. Sir Robert Walpole, Britain's first Prime Minister and to this day her longest-serving PM, was forced to resign. Attention now moved to North America. The colony or province of Georgia, which had only been established in the early 1730s, was regarded by the British as a buffer between the rest of their North American colonies and the Spanish in Florida. The problem with buffer zones is that they're often seen as a source of tension and something to fight over. Now, the Spanish didn't mind a blank, neutral zone between Florida and the colonies to the north. But Georgia brought the British right to their borders. And as I said earlier, this was raising tensions locally as well as internationally. Co-founder of the British colony, James Oglethorpe, had seen the writing on the wall. A few years earlier, in 1737, he was allowed to raise the 42nd Regiment to defend the colony. When the war broke out in 1739, Colonel Oglethorpe, as he now was, encouraged local Creek Native Americans to sally across the border to attack outlying Spanish settlements. Then, gathering his regiment along with volunteers from the other British colonies, in 1740 he led an invasion of Florida. Rather like down there in Cartagena, the attackers didn't fare well. Oglethorpe's assault on the Spanish fort at St Augustine was beaten off, and he retreated back into Georgia. In 1742, it was the turn of the Spaniards to go on the offensive. A force of 2,000 men advanced into Georgia and met Oglethorpe's army. At the ensuing Battle of Bloody Marsh, the Spaniards were severely defeated, losing 200 of their men. By now, the War of Jenkins' Ear had been subsumed into a far more serious European war, the War of Austrian Succession. The spats in the Caribbean and Florida, Georgia, were small fry, compared to a war that had now erupted between Spain, allied with France, Prussia and Sweden, amongst others, against a coalition consisting of Great Britain, Habsburg Austria, Russia, Sardinia, the Dutch and Hanover, plus a few more. The War of Jenkins' Ear was to all intents and purposes over. Although, as Britain was still fighting Spain in this new war, the conflict didn't officially end until that war was brought to a close in 1748. There was one small hangover from the War of Jenkins' Ear that rolled over into the War of Austrian Succession, the Anson Expedition. Back in September 1740, when it was just Britain versus Spain, Commodore George Anson was ordered to take a fleet of six ships to the Pacific Ocean and there to raid Spanish ports and shipping along the western seaboard of Spain's American Empire. Only three of his ships made it round the treacherous Cape Horn at the southern tip of the continent, and by the time they'd sailed up the coast of Chile, the crews were laid low with scurvy. Eventually, Anson was forced to consolidate what was left of his three crews onto HMS Centurion. In 1743, when by now the War of Austrian Succession was up and running, he successfully captured a Spanish treasure ship bound for Manila in the Spanish Philippines. The vessel contained over one million gold coins. Deciding against returning via Cape Horn, Commodore Anson now sailed across the Indian Ocean, around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, and up the Atlantic. HMS Centurion arrived home three and a half years after leaving Britain, having circumnavigated the globe, and picking up one million gold coins in the process. Anson was to go on to become First Lord of the Admiralty. 
the Peace Treaty of 1748 brought to an end the War of Austrian Succession, and by default, the War of Jenkins' Ear. The net result? No change. Not a single piece of land exchanged hands between Spain and Britain. No compensation was paid by either side. No new trading treaties were signed. So, exactly who won the War of Jenkins' Ear? Well, it's hard to say. The British declared the war and stormed Portobello and held off the invasion of Georgia. On the other hand, they failed in their own invasion of Florida and they certainly failed at Cartagena. So maybe a score drawer at best. But, and I say this as a patriotic Englishman, maybe the Spanish just nicked it. All in all, it didn't achieve very much. Hardly surprising then that it's been forgotten. It possibly wouldn't be remembered at all if it hadn't been for the slightly bizarre name, the War of Jenkins' Ear. And that raises a question. Whatever happened to Robert Jenkins? Well, whilst the war to which he'd helped fuel was being fought, he was given command of an East India Company ship and ended up briefly administering their small island base of St Helena in the Mid-Atlantic. That's the island that Napoleon would be exiled to after the Battle of Waterloo. And after that, he disappears back into the mists of history. And yet, links to the War of Jenkins' Ear do live on to this day. In Britain, both the Portobello area of Edinburgh and Portobello Road with the Portobello Market in London celebrate Admiral Vernon's only major victory in that war. Meanwhile, his nemesis, the one-eyed, one-legged, one-armed Blastelezo, is commemorated in both Colombia and Spain. He's rightly regarded as one of Spain's greatest naval commanders, and a frigate currently serving in the Spanish Navy bears his name. Every year, at Wormslow Plantation near Savannah in Georgia, the Battle of Bloody Marsh, where Colonel Oglethorpe defeated the Spanish, is commemorated. And further north, in Virginia, Lawrence Washington returned from the war and renamed his estate in honour of his commanding officer in the war. When he died, Mount Vernon passed to his younger brother, George Washington. Oh, and there's one last link that is definitely worth a mention. Remember that the main reason the war was fought was because British merchant ships were being boarded by the Spanish Coast Guards? Well, it was an affront to British national pride and also to her trade. And it was felt that British ships should be able to sail the seas in safety and without interference. In August 1740, less than a year into the War of Jenkins' Ear, a mask about Alfred the Great was performed at Cliverdon House in front of the Prince of Wales. Remember that Frederick Prince of Wales was a friend of the so-called Patriots, who wanted a far more robust policy than Frederick's father, George II, and his Prime Minister, Robert Walpole. During the mask, a song written by Augustine Arn with words by James Thompson was performed. It summed up the Patriots' robust position. It's still sung to this day, and whilst the Victorians crucially added the letter S to make it a triumphant patriotic song, Thompson hadn't written it in triumph. But as a plea on behalf of Britain's merchant sailors, like the one-eared Robert Jenkins, for Britain to protect her sailors and trade. And it is his words that are still the official lyrics. Rule Britannia. Britannia, rule the waves. Thanks for joining me today, and I hope you enjoyed that story about the little-known war of Jenkins' ear. So many stories to tell you from this period of British history. Coming very soon are the wars with revolutionary and then Napoleonic France, both on sea as well as on land. Subscribe to my YouTube channel or sign up for my free weekly newsletter so you don't miss those episodes. There's a link in the description. Until next time, thanks for your support, keep well, and I'll see you again very soon.